You are listening to Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. My name is Lauren Scott, and I'm interviewing State Representative Andrew Fink of the 58th District. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Lauren. Last week, you helped approve a plan that would provide much-needed tax relief for families, seniors, workers, and veterans in Michigan. This plan would encompass many things, such as income tax cuts for Michigan workers and many other great things. Uh, What are the major highlights to take into account regarding this plan? Yeah, so just to quickly kind of hit the the components of it, there's a child tax credit as well as an earned earned income tax credit. Uh, those are both items that uh, uh, other stakeholders in the conversation have, have expressed uh, a desire to get accomplished. And so we, we worked that into a plan that also included an expansion of the uh, tax exemption for disabled veterans. That's a property tax ex- exemption. And then I think the, the real key features for me in this, in this plan are uh, an increase in the personal exemption. So you're, you're taxed on less of your income. That's a good response, I think, to a, a time of uh, unexpected inflation, uh, particularly one where the CPI, the, the Consumer Price Index, may or may not uh, cap- capture all of the additional expenses that folks are living with now. So I think that was a good response to uh, to the inflationary time that we're living in, and a rate cut where the the personal income tax in Michigan would go from four and a quarter percent to four percent. That's a meaningful long term change that. Uh, kind of helps to put the state back in a direction of of kind of treating the people the citizens as the uh as the most important element not uh, you know any agenda from a particular department or whatever in lansing so i saw some reporting characterize the tax cut as a two and a half billion dollar reduction in state revenues which i think is just a backwards way to look at it it's a two and a half billion dollar uh increase in what the taxpayers in michigan get to keep what does this support look like for this plan? Well, it passed. Uh, well, uh, there's actually one element that's that's yet to be passed. I expect it'll be passed by the House tomorrow, um, and uh, the rest of it's already passed both houses of the both both chambers of the legislature, uh, and so the the entire plan will be available to the governor later this week. Um, she has said that she expects to veto it. I. I, I can't say exactly why she wants to veto it. I mean, in the past, we've tried some of these elements. I mean, we've we've done, in, in addition to other kinds of tax relief, we did an income tax cut uh, from four and a quarter to 3.9%. That would bring us closer into line with the states that are growing. I mean, the average, uh, the average of the top 10 states that added population in 2021, uh, I think their average income tax rate is 3.9. It's at least right around there below where Michigan's is for sure. Our tax rate is uh, a little lower than like uh, California, but it is more like the states that are shrinking, California, Illinois, New York, uh, than it is like the states that are growing, like Tennessee, Florida, and Texas. So getting our income tax rate closer to that range makes a lot of sense. The governor vetoed a 3.9% cut, or a cut to 3.9%, and so this is a cut to 4.0%. I mean, it it takes into account the fact that we know she said that she won't sign a 39 and uh, uh, evidently she doesn't want to sign a 4.0 either, even though it's it's passed in connection with other things that she has said were priorities, like the earned income tax credit going up. So I don't think there's a, a whole ton of reasoning behind it, except you know her her plan last week was to send out $500 checks with her name on it in an election year. 
you can imagine why she thinks that that's such a good idea. But it's not really a policy change that puts Michigan on a better path going forward. That's, I mean, at most you could say it's a Band-Aid. It's certainly true that the state now has more money than, than we expected it to. But I say it makes more sense to adjust our revenue uh, generating sources if we're getting more money than, than we really need rather than just find ways to hand the money back out. We've seen this a lot with Democratic leaders. It'll be a common sense issue and they'll veto it and they'll not support it. So like you said, there are some priorities that this plan would include that the governor had wanted. Why do you think she is still against it? Why does she not get behind it and support it if there are certain priorities that even she wanted? Well, I, look, I don't, I don't, uh, uh, I don't want to guess at exactly what her motivations are um, more beyond saying like she had a different plan that was in my view, nowhere near as good. Um, but I, I think she, her belief has always been that bipartisanship is the legislature doing whatever she wants. So um, rejecting that kind of bipartisanship, I don't, I don't really think that hard about you know what her motivations are because uh, that's just, it's not a cooperative way to actually get anything done. But uh I guess I would say that that she probably is is a, a believer in the idea that uh, when the state takes in revenue, the question is like how what what is the state going to do with it then? Whereas my view is that you should think about what the state should be working on uh, trying to accomplish, and then adjust your revenue to meet the needs that the taxpayers have actually indicated they want met through the state. So you know the tax the taxes serve the policy that you're supposed to be implementing. Uh, you don't come up with policies as a way to spend money that you happen to have taxed, if that makes sense. And so I guess I think that she probably just has this whole thing backwards where she thinks of the state as the main actor here. Um, and in reality, it's the productive people of the state of Michigan that have generated the, in, you know, the, the revenue that the state has. So moving towards a, you know, moving, moving our policy in a direction that actually meets uh, the needs of the state with less taxation, that's the only thing that really makes sense to me. I guess she just doesn't see it that way. So considering the fact that she has vetoed two other tax plans proposed to her by the legislator this year, and you said this one has a good chance of also being vetoed, is there any sort of um, like a backup plan that is being expected to put in place or anything else that you guys are working towards? Well, yeah, I mean, she she has said that she wants to cut taxes, right? She said that in her state of the state, which is very different from her first state of the state when she said she wanted to add 45 cents to the gas tax, uh, lest anyone forget. That's that's what she really, I mean, when she, when she had time, she thought to make the case. That's what she really wanted to do. Now she's in an election year. She wants to talk about tax cuts, but she's rejected every version of them that we've had, which again, it just gets back to the, to the basic problem of thinking that bipartisanship is the legislature doing whatever she wants, because- she advocated for a particular plan for seniors and a particular plan for the earned income tax credit. We've done uh, we've we've done multiple things now that respond to the issues that she raised there, but in ways that actually uh, either benefit more Michigan seniors, more working families, more taxpayers in general, and that's what she's evidently uh, uh, got a problem with. So, I mean. There's not an end to. I mean, there's no day on which uh, I and my caucus are gonna are gonna stop stop talking about trying to find ways to give uh, tax relief to Michigan families. That's that we're going to keep trying to do that. Uh, but I can't say that it's going to be like a particularly rational back and forth with the governor at this point because when she's expressed 
uh, when she's expressed goals that we've passed legislation that meets and exceeds those goals. You know, you want to protect Michigan workers. Well, we've given her more opportunities to do that than she even asked for. You want to protect Michigan seniors. We've given her more opportunities to do that than she's asked for. You want to protect. Uh, uh, you want to protect against the inflation that we're dealing with right now. We gave a get. We we passed a gas tax holiday directly responsive to that concern, and she's rejected all of them. It just makes you think that she cares more about politics than policy, which, frankly. I think we already knew. Governor Whitmer ordered Enbridge to shut down Line 5 Pipeline, a pipeline that's located under the Straits of Mackinac that is responsible for heating businesses and homes, as well as fueling vehicles and providing power for industries all throughout Michigan. What kind of impact would this shutdown have on Michigan's economy overall? Well, uh, the Consumers Energy Alliance, which is not related to Consumers Energy, it's confusing in Michigan because we have a major utility called Consumers Energy, but it's actually a, a na- nationwide um, uh, uh, citizen or consumers-focused uh, energy group. They analyzed that shutting shutting down pipe line five, that pipeline would cost the state about you know people in the state about two point two billion dollars. Uh, I think that they there was a piece that ran in the Wall Street Journal citing that. Um, so that's a rough, I mean, you know, even if that number was off by 10 or 20%, it's an enormous amount of money, enormous impact on the people of our state uh, to shut that down. And there's no scientific or engineering reason to do so. Just to kind of hit the highlights of it, line five is, a is it, you described it, as you described it, it's a pipeline on the bottom of the Straits of Mackinac. It's three times thicker than a normal pipeline. It's never leaked. There have been leaks of other materials in the, in the Straits, but Line 5 itself has never leaked. And there is already a proposal in place uh, from Enbridge to build a tunnel that would house the pipeline and have the capability to do more than just house the pipeline. And for whatever reason, our Attorney General Dana Nessel and our governor uh, have decided to oppose both of these, you know, both the, pre- the current uh, pipeline and the tunnel itself. Opposing the tunnel itself, I, I'll just say, makes zero sense to me. I mean, we have a tunnel between Windsor and Detroit under... Uh, under the Detroit River in the exact, I mean, it's the same water system as the Great Lakes. You know, the, the Detroit River is just the, the connection between uh, Lake St. Clair and Lake Erie. So you can do a tunnel and, and move cars underneath it. I, I don't see why you couldn't do a tunnel, a brand new concrete tunnel, and, uh, and move, put a pipeline on, under it. Uh, there's there's really, again, no scientific or engineering reason to uh, be as resistant as they've been. In this case, I think it's a it's an, it's an instance of sort of pandering to uh, an extreme, extreme environmentalist left. I mean, it's it's uh, there's, again, no evidence that there's really a problem with line five in the first place. But even if there were, the tunnel would be a very uh, attractive solution to it. And I mean, it's attractive for other reasons because you could use it for more stuff. But uh, the continued resistance to it is it, uh, appears to me to be essentially emotional and not tied to any any sound policy of any kind. So again, I think it's it's a, an instance where uh, the people are being sold out by the administration in favor of some extremists in their coalition because they've just decided to give this issue to the extremists. You are listening to Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. My name is Lauren Scott, and I'm interviewing State Representative Andrew Fink of the 58th District. Many in favor of the shutdown say that the majority of energy produced by Line 5 goes to Canada and that Michigan does not 
heavily rely on it for its energy. What would you say in response to this? Well, again, I mean, it's not it's not like I'm the one who's pulling the calculator out and doing these studies. Uh, uh, an independent group like Consumers Energy Alliance has, has uh, I think that's what they're called, whatever they're called. You can find it, again, there's a Wall Street Journal op-ed about it. But um, I think that, that even if it is the majority uh, that goes to Canada, I mean, first of all, why is that bad? I mean, there, you know, there are most significant trading partner. We do all kinds of cross-border transactions with them. So I don't really see a reason to think that that's a, it's not like it's a reason to shut it down that it goes to Canada, or at least historically, that that's not what we would say. Um, secondly, actually, it does bring up another issue, which is the Canadian government is uh, more or less on the same side uh, as the Michigan taxpayer should be because there's a uh, sort of an international relations element to this pipeline. Um, Enbridge is a Canadian company, which is really neither here nor there, but uh, it does it does make it maybe a little more likely that at the end uh, that rational policy is going to win out and line five will, will remain open. But the fact that it, it is a, either a Canadian company or has uh, you know some benefits to the Canadian economy does not change the fact that it is a very significant uh, uh, mover of energy for both sides of you know both the upper and lower peninsulas in Michigan. And the fact that our government is so hard, our, our administration is so heartless as to try to prevent affordable, reliable energy from reaching Michigan taxpayers is ridiculous and blaming it on Canada or whatever makes no sense. This would cause an economic struggle, not only for families, but for small businesses and industries as well. And then on top of inflation, what we're dealing with right now, and then the tax cuts, what we were talking about earlier, um, it's a struggle. How would this shutdown affect employment in the state? Well, I mean, it's it would be an artificially it would artificially raise the cost of energy, which which you know that's that's something that uh, I guess one way to put it is it takes you know so much energy to produce a good, and that's not really uh, you know that's an inelastic kind of requirement, and so. What what will wind up happening is just a decrease in in energy efficiency uh, in the efficiency of purchasing energy from an economic standpoint, and the people who will pay for that are the the citizens of Michigan, uh, whether it's through less availability of uh, of of good paying jobs or just the jobs are not paying as well or or whatever you know which whether it it turns out to eliminate positions or reduce wages or both um, it. There's no such thing as free lunch here, and if you raise the energy costs artificially, then you're going to wind up paying the price somewhere else because it doesn't. You can't. You can't impose a new burden on the economy and not pay the price someplace. Uh, I mean, beyond that, there's the to the consumers, like the the individuals that purchase energy that can be moved. You know, different different types of materials can be moved through Line Five their direct costs are going to go up. So I would expect um, the, the, the cost of uh, various kinds of fuel used by, you know, everyday consumers uh, to go up on both sides, again, both sides of the straits. It's not, that's, there, there is kind of a perception out there that this is basically about energy for the UP. And that, that means it's not that big of a problem. That's just not the way pipeline pipelines work. I mean, there's, there's stuff coming back and forth uh, both directions. And even if it were, it's not like it would be no big deal if it were just the UP, but it's not just the UP. You recently supported a budget plan that would help fund police recruitment and retention efforts. What is the status of this bill and what are some of the major takeaways? 
Yeah, I'm the vice chair of the of the state police budget committee in the uh, subcommittee in the House. And the status is, uh, for, as with all departmental budgets right now, each chamber has passed their own version. And we're into what's called conference, where the uh, chairs and others uh, from the committees meet and sort of try to hammer out the differences between the Senate version and the House version of a given budget. Um, the So... That once that happens, then presumably we'll have some kind of agreement between the House and the Senate. Those budgets will be passed, and then the question is whether or not we have agreement with the governor on them or not. And that's the question for a future date since we aren't really to that stage yet. Um, the recruiting and retention incentives that I'm talking about include uh, uh, funding um, uh, some application or uh, uh, recruits to go through the recruiting school for the state police. Uh, and I think probably, well, may, I shouldn't say more importantly, but, but meaningfully, uh, some, taking some steps to attract uh, police officers from out of state to come and work in Michigan, uh, essentially making it easier to move retirements and things like that. The big reason that's a, a concern for me is oh, the state police uh, has said, and they're correct, that, they're, that their recruiting is it's more difficult for them to recruit right now than it has been in the past. Uh, but the state police is still one of the destination agencies to work for. If you're a police officer in Michigan, they hire people who have been working in other police departments with some frequency. Um, and so it's even harder for the average small town or even county police department or sheriff's department uh, to recruit uh, and and retain high-quality police officers. There are some cultural issues there, obviously. I mean, there's been massive exaggeration of the uh, of the number of police officers involved in unjustified shootings and things like that. I mean, the fact that those things happen does not mean that they always happen or usually happen with the average police officer. The average police officer uh, is, you know, a, um, a brave person who's been willing to set aside uh, personal ambition in order to keep the community safe. And when we've seen policing as a profession uh, not kind of treated as an honorable uh, and, and integrated part of our community, but instead as sort of some kind of outside force uh, heartlessly acting on everybody else in the communities. It, it's just not a good way to kind of build uh, trust between the police officers and the communities they, they work in, and it's not a good way to kind of build up the uh, respectability of that profession for new applicants. And so you're seeing uh, applications that, you know, openings that used to get dozens of applications getting single-digit applications. Um, I, I just saw the numbers from the city of Chicago. I, I don't remember them off the top of my head, but but overall they've lost net. They've lost hundreds and hundreds of police officers in the last three years. I don't think we have any cities that are as bad off as Chicago at the moment, uh, but if we don't kind of stabilize the police uh, profession in Michigan, then there's no reason that we couldn't see proportionally similar decreases in numbers because, again, there's kind of this cultural or non-economic pressure to avoid the profession. If we also allow it to be a, non, a less desirable job economically, then we're not going to have the kind of high-quality applicants and uh, long-term police officers that we want. What would this mean for families of law enforcement? Well, the the particularly the... Um, uh, additional flexibility in moving in moving retirement accounts would mean that say you're a police officer who grew up in Michigan and you want to come home, but uh, there there's been sort of less um, lesser recruiting incentives or whatever to do so. Alleviating some of that uh, could you know expose us to 
to police officers who would like to be in Michigan, would like to raise their families here, but currently don't see enough of an incentive to do so. And uh, at, at the end of the day, policing should be a profession that can provide for a family, you know, that can be, a, um, again, an integrated part of the community. Uh, and that's, it's, nobody expects to get rich as a police officer. And, and I'm not asking anybody to, to look at it as a job that, that should be, you know, what you could call lucrative. Um, but it should be enough where, and I guess the way I used to put it is I, you know, I grew up in a family of, of six, although my baby sister was born after my dad retired, but I was 13 when my dad retired and there were five of us then. And, uh, he had a reasonable amount of time off not a lot of money. So we camped a lot, but the point is like, it was still a happy, you know, it was a happy existence. Like, no, we didn't, uh, and we never went to, uh, Europe or Puerto Rico or something, but we did get to go camping around Michigan state parks a lot. And that's like, that, that's obviously a workable kind of way of doing it. You know, giving them the support to be with their family, some time off, things like that. You can do that and you don't have to, to pay police officers exorbitant amounts in order to make them feel like they're kind of, uh, being recognized for the the sacrifice that they put in. And I guess the last thing I want to say is, you know, I don't know that, that folks who've never, not certainly plenty of people have, but if you, if you've never lived in a, in a, the same house as a police officer, um, and heard the frequency with which the phone rings at night, at least if, if, uh, as was the case with my dad, he was involved in the SWAT team and he was a, a lieutenant and things like that as I was growing up. And so he had extra responsibilities, but you know, the, the phone rings in the middle of the night and I knew that the next sound I would hear was my dad's car starting. You know, I mean, it's, it's a job where you set your own comfort aside day after day after day. And if we don't recognize that and, uh, and in both economic and cultural ways, um, then we're, we're not going to have the police officers that our children deserve, that our communities deserve, and that we really want to have. All right. Thank you so much for joining us today. That's all the questions I have. Thank you, Lauren. Our guest has been State Representative Andrew Fink of the 58th District. I'm Lauren Scott, and you are listening to Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM.